Welcome back to the Pennsylvania Prisons and Parole Podcast. We're brought to you by the Department of Corrections Communications Office. My name is Ryan Tarkowski, and I'm joined by executive producer Kurt Bope. The month of April is just around the corner, and we think everyone is looking forward to more sunshine, longer days, and warmer weather. But April is also an important month with several religious holidays coming up, Easter, Passover, and Ramadan, just to name a few. So what does faith look like for the residents of DOC's correctional institutions? How does our department help incarcerated people practice their religion? And what role does the community play? Today we'll chat with Reverend Uli Clem. He's the DOC's Religious Services Administrator to learn more about faith while incarcerated. Reverend Uli Clem, thank you for joining us today. Can we start just by giving us your background and tell us how you arrived at the Department of Corrections? I'm actually a Mennonite pastor by trade and was volunteering with death row inmates in Illinois many moons ago and um, had an interest of combining my interest or combining my interest in criminal justice with being a pastor and was selected to be the chaplain at the Allegheny County Jail in Pittsburgh back in 1992 and subsequently in about 18 years ago was asked to be the um, religious services administrator for the Department of Corrections. So you've been doing this almost two decades now. I've been doing it for a while, still learning. So we have several religious holidays coming up in the month of April. Why is spring such an important time for so many religions? Well, spring, it so happens that um, inmates or people in the community of the Jewish tradition and Christian traditions um, their holy days of uh, related to Easter and uh, Lent are generally always in the spring. It also happens um, to be that Ramadan, which is a Muslim holy day, it basically moves backwards um, 11 days every year. So it so happens to coincide also in the spring. And so f- four faith traditions, Muslims, Christian Catholics, Christian Protestants, and Christian Jehovah Witnesses will all be celebrating Holy Days in the month of April. And how do you make that work? How do, Well, back up a little bit. Tell me about your team at the different facilities. How many people work in the chaplaincy? How do you rely on outside chaplains? How does that all work together to make religious services and the DOC work together? So there are roughly 20, well, there are 24 prisons throughout Pennsylvania, and just about all of them has a head chaplain, and that person both serves in an administrative capacity to do all the scheduling and keep all the puzzle pieces moving together. Um, and we then both employ and contract with additional chaplains, totaling about 150 people, some who work as little as two hours a week, some who work full-time, um, and their job is to address the spiritual needs of the inmates that are there. Um, They'll do services, some will do uh, classes, there's lots of rounds or visitation to inmates in their cells who can't leave their housing units. Um, They're engaged in death notifications, they're engaged in counseling, um, really a whole slew and and often chaplains are asked to do uh, a lot of things that aren't on their job description but that help um, address some of the emotional needs that inmates are are facing. 
Um, and my job is to basically be a liaison to keep all those pieces together and to oversee the policy by which those uh, chaplains operate. What are the biggest differences for chaplains working inside an institution versus their day-to-day work outside of an institution? So the full-time chaplains who are working in, in the, inside our institutions, this is their gig. This is where they give their primary and ultimate attention. And that means when religious services are normally held, uh, if they're held on a weekend or on a Sunday or a Friday uh, or Saturday, they are there. Or after sunset, they are there. Um, on the outside, you know, there are c- contracted folks who... Um, either are sent there by a a local Catholic diocese or work independently as a religious leader in the community who then take, uh, sort of in a part-time capacity, then engage inmates in leading specific religious classes or services um, respective to their faiths. Um, So we rely on actually both of them. It is a little, it's a lot different inside the prison because it's a very secure environment Inmates aren't running around free. Um, Everything has to be scheduled. Um, And of course, appropriate security measures are are in place so inmates aren't bringing things into the chapel uh, to trade with other inmates or to to hurt or harm anybody. Do we have a chaplain specifically specializing in every faith that's represented at an institution or do they kind of pull double duty sometimes? So chaplains are hired really to be chaplains for all. Now, chaplains will come in with their own credentials. So I'm a, I'm, I would be in the Protestant faith. So if I was inside an institution, I would be a chaplain for all. And secondary, secondarily, I would be a chaplain to inmates of the Protestant faith leading Protestant services. Um, we rely on both chaplains but also contractors and community volunteers to provide and, and be the faith group leaders for each faith community. Um, some, faith, some prisons have 12 different faith groups meeting each week. And in most of those cases, we have community volunteers and chaplains leading those. In, a, in some instances, instances with Um, certain parameters, we actually have inmates guiding those services with the help of DVDs from those faith groups, reading from sacred texts, singing sacred songs, reading sacred uh, prayers, um, and occasionally also allowing them to have some limited discussion or an inmate giving something like a message for a very short period of time. And why is faith, while someone may be incarcerated, so important? For a lot of folks who enter um, the criminal justice system, um, it's for many of them. It's it's the only thing they have left. Uh, If you come through a prison gate, you're stripped of your clothes. Uh, In some settings, you're you may feel like you've been stripped of your dignity. Um, You are isolated from your families and support system, and you're placed in a very foreign. A sterile environment where you are by yourself. Um, and for many persons who are incarcerated, faith comes takes on new meaning. 
Um, certainly in the tradition, tr Christian tradition, although it's not the only tradition, also the Jewish tradition, um, there are examples of some of their main leaders being persons who have spent time in prison um, and you know, accused of crimes uh, and who have written about those experiences. They've written, written from, written, or have their faith has become alive in those prison cells and they have shared their teachings with others. Um, and inmates, well, actually everyone, all of us, well, many of us in the community and also inmates find great uh, motivation and inspiration um, from what folks have experienced in their incarcerated settings and what hope they have to share for us. So inmates readily identify with those uh, faith stories. Do you have an example of seeing a change brought about in an inmate by uh, accepting faith or exploring their own faith? A, a success story that you look back on and say, this really helped this person. We actually have several chaplains who are employed and contracted by the TOC, uh, at least five of them, who don't have a stellar past, but who in their youth took a uh, a wrong turn and actually were incarcerated themselves um, and who now work for the department and share their stories of transformation that, that faith was for them what changed their lives and naturally uh, when those chaplains speak inmates listen just a little more carefully than with folks who don't have that shared experience. Do you think that experience helps them relate to the people they're speaking to? Absolutely, all, all the time. We just recently contracted with a, another gentleman. Um, you know, when, when folks apply to be either an employee or a contractor, they have to disclose what their past was. And um, as long as it's, there's certain standards by which we vet people, um, but the one person's story was very powerful uh, and because the DOC did not have an issue with his past, they elected to contract with him and I think that was a great decision. Not quite sure how to ask this question actually, but there are the, the major religions that probably have a lot of people in every institution that uh, folks might know off the top of their head, but then there are, are also religions that might not have as many members, those folks still have a right to their religious services, right? How do we accommodate some of the religions that don't have as many members at a certain institution? Well, let me take you down memory lane for just for a minute. Um, in four of our institutions, uh, a progressive thinker back in the 1940s built um, it was the architect behind what I call a Lazy Susan Altar. And the Lazy Susan Altar, that's my name for it, is divided into three parts. And it's circular. And one of those altar sections was for Protestants, the other one's for Catholic, and the other one was for Jewish. That was in the 40s. Move ahead, and that was a pro progressive move on their part. How do we accommodate different religions? move ahead to 2022 and you know again here at one institution there are 12 groups trying to vie for those quote three 
sections of that lazy Susan Alter, well, that ain't going to work. Um, I would be not responsible if I said that it, it was easy for the DOC to accommodate the growing diverse number of religions that inmates come to us with, or that they discover while they're incarcerated. There were three places on that altar, and it took time for, for institutions to say, hey, that was good for the time, but now we need to really take down those partitions. So each institution um, is tasked with trying to accommodate the vast the variety of, of religions that are present in our institutions in their chapels or their space that they have um, as best as they possibly can. It used to be that some institutions um, filled up their schedules with church groups that had called and say, hey, we'll volunteer. And they used to volunteer an awful lot. Um, and then some of those prisons had to be brought to task when I said, well, what about this other group? Let's say this group of Wiccan inmates or this group of inmates who call themselves who are Buddhist. Where, where's room for them on the schedule? And some of the chaplains said, well, I'm sorry, our schedule's full. And I said, no, it's not. It, it's right, it is full, but it's full of the wrong things. Um, it's, not, it's not shared fairly between all the religious groups. And actually, COVID really forced chaplaincy departments to become much more fair in their allocation of resources, um, which I'm grateful for, because they were asked to provide as many DVDs and other resources that could be broadcast on the institutional televisions, and they had to do that in a fair and equitable way. And so there now was one Wicca broadcast, and one Catholic broadcast, and one Jewish, and one Muslim, and. Um, one Jehovah's Witnesses and one Native American. And it's like, yes, that's really the way it should have been all along. Um, and now we're thankfully moving in that direction. Do you ever hear from inmates that say there was a certain faith that they didn't know anything about on the outside because they weren't exposed to it? And now that they are incarcerated, they get exposed to this new way of thinking or uh, a faith that they hadn't even considered and it becomes helpful to them. We receive roughly a hundred what's called inmate religious accommodation requests every month. And the vast majority, and, and that's a form that's used, that inmates use to request an accommodation uh, for religious purposes. And one of the questions that we ask is, how long have you been practicing this faith? And I would guess that 70% of them say something to the effect that I am adopting this religion or I've adopted it since I've been in prison. I was talking with a cellmate, I was talking with a friend in prison. Now, some say they've been practicing this faith for life. Um, and they really shouldn't be in jail if they were really practicing their faith. But besides that, um, a vast majority of people are claiming that they 
either started reading something for the first time while they were incarcerated or they were talking with a relative who said, you know, you've, you've done things your way for so long. Why don't maybe you should try opening your life up to in a greater spiritual dimension? You mentioned the religious accommodation requests. I think our listeners might wonder if a lot of these new sincerely held religious beliefs are actually sincerely held. Is there, do you get involved in judging whether or not somebody is really changing their ways or is just looking for a special accommodation or do you kind of welcome everybody? That's the million dollar question. How do you discern if people are being sincere or if they're using religion as a way to game the system? In the Department of Corrections in Pennsylvania, at this level we review the written statements that inmates have shared in applying for a religious accommodation, and we review the comments that or the evaluation comments that an institution makes as they have a one-on-one sit-down meeting with inmates to discuss their requests. Currently, 80% of the accommodation requests are for one of three religious diets that the department offers. The department is obligated to provide diets that meet Um, religious standards of different faiths and we do the best we can with what we what we the three options that we provide it used to be that we granted a lot more said yes to a lot more requests for religious diets but in the past couple years we feel it's our duty um, to make sure that inmates aren't gaming us And so we do check their commissary purchases around the time of their making the requests. And if an inmate's commissary purchases demonstrate that the foods they say they're prohibited from eating, they're not eating, they're ordering other stuff, Um, plus additional, they're they're involved in religious services, they have an idea of what they're talking about, uh, whether they're asking for Um, a diet that's kosher or doesn't contain animal products, um, etc., then we will readily grant the request. But if there is blatant inconsistencies, um, we're going to say, I'm sorry, you're denied. Um, And so we feel that we've done a a very good job in the last couple of years of tightening down um, any abuse that may have been happening before um, and we think it's it's inviting people to, to take their religion more seriously, which is a good thing. We take I take my religion very seriously, and I you know hope that others, those that are incarcerated, will do the same. What do you think is going to be next for the chaplaincy? I know COVID changes a lot. Talking about in cell delivery of services or changing the way that um, volunteers work with our institutions five, ten years down the line, what would you like to see different or evolved or changed when it comes to delivering religious services to incarcerated people? How can we make it better? I think the biggest, or one big area is, and this may sound very weird coming from the head chaplain for the DOC, 
I'm not interested in seeing inmates become more religious while they're incarcerated in the narrow sense of the word. I'm interested in them integrating their religious practice and beliefs to make them community citizens that contribute something very positive once they leave our institutions. And I think for, for too long, religious people, including chaplains and volunteers, sort of forget, or, or they think that simply giving an inmate more knowledge about a religious principle or a religious figure will automatically lead to them being a productive worker on the job and taking authority from their new boss seriously and staying with the job. And, and I, I would love to see a more integrated approach that sees what we provide through the chaplaincy department not simply being narrowly limited to what's religious and religious jargon, which inmates can parrot back pretty readily, but incorporates issues of integrity um, and learning to be submissive to authority and follow rules as part of their religious practice. And that's not always the case. And that's a long-term goal. And I, and I say that having talked with folks who have worked with offenders uh, once they've been released on the outside. And they say, man, these guys can quote the Bible or the Quran, but boy, do they have a hard time following simple orders. Um, they want to be their own bosses, and they need to, we need chaplains to help us address that mentality that is re helping to repeat, um, helping to foster uh, a high recidivism rate. If somebody in the community wanted to volunteer or provide religious texts or religious services uh, as part of their own faith journey, how can they help the DOC? How, they, how can they support incarcerated people looking to expand their faith? So we welcome and invite volunteers to contact um, perhaps the, one of their, their facility, the state DOC facility closest to them, or they can contact my office and I can refer them to one um, where they can ask if they are able to either volunteer, if, if there's a need for volunteers, um, if there's a need for religious texts or other kinds of things. Um, I often suggest that volunteers not come with a preconceived notion of this is what God told me that I'm going to do at that prison, versus to come with it asking the prison, I feel I'm being led to offer my services, how can I be most helpful? Um, it may be that another Bible study isn't what the prison needs. They might be open to having someone teach them to read. And if they teach someone how to read, then they could read the sacred text of their choosing um, on their own when the volunteer isn't there. Um, or maybe in some other area. Um, and the same goes with religious texts. Sometimes we are filled to the brim with religious texts of certain faiths um, that naturally want to give materials to the prisons and other faiths are lacking. Um, and there are procedures by which that can be accommodated. Reverend Uli Clem, the DOC's Religious Services Administrator, thank you for joining us today. We'll look forward to chatting with you again in the near future. Thank you. 
Thanks again to Reverend Uli Clem for his time and for explaining how faith is fostered in our facilities. I think it was interesting to learn how Uli and his whole team work so hard behind the scenes to make sure everyone's faith is respected and supported. And of course, thank you for listening to the Pennsylvania Prisons and Parole Podcast, a production of the Department of Corrections Communications Office. Before we go, let's check in with producer Kurt to see what's coming up next time. Yeah, so next month is actually Second Chance Month in Pennsylvania. So be sure to check out our social media channels and other channels for um, just content throughout the month. Videos, pictures, stories, blog posts focused on reentry and how the DOC works towards reentry. And that includes our next podcast, which will feature our friends from Flagger Force. They're an employer that you'll get to learn all about, and they focus on hiring uh, some of our reentrants. And so we'll be able to talk with them, see what they do, and that'll be our next episode. Looking forward to Second Chance Month in the month of April. For now, for producer Kurt Bope, I'm Ryan Tarkowski. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and Twitter at CorrectionsPA. To check out our blog or to learn more about the DOC, visit our website, cor.pa.gov. Until next time, thanks again for listening.